Hello and welcome to the Painting Podcast. Episode 7, Cezanne is Superman. Painting Podcast gives art history from a painter's perspective. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the life and work of Paul Cezanne, a painter synonymous with his aloof character and plein air paintings of the landscape he lived in nearly his whole life. So when I first encountered a Cezanne, I was probably 18 years old at the Art Institute of Chicago. And they have a painting there, one of the big uh, still life paintings, and it's just called A Basket of Apples. And it's a bunch of apples kind of falling all over uh, from one half of the composition to the other. And the table is a bit disjointed, so the back part of the left side of the painting doesn't necessarily line up with the right side of the painting. And the paint, you know, the apples are painted simply as simple shapes with some little brushwork on the outside of them, with some line delineations um, showing that these are indeed apples. They're not something that is very highly rendered or necessarily shows a tremendous about amount of skill with rendering um, or something like that. And when I first saw this painting, I had to wonder, like, what is the big deal with Cezanne? Because always we hear that Cezanne is this grandfather of modernism and Picasso and Braque, of course, looked up to him greatly. Picasso even said he was a, quote, mother hovering over us all. And Henry Matisse said he was a father to us all. So I guess he was a bit of a mother and a father as well in both those regards. But these are the giants of modernism, and they're all looking to Cezanne. And, and I'm here looking at these apples thinking, what is happening with these apples um, it's easy to, to walk up to Picasso's early cubist works or, you know, those figurative works he did in the 1920s of those bulky uh, figures playing on the beach and stuff like that. We have a really easy entry point for that type of work. But Paul Cezanne's work, it seems just a bit out of place, I guess, in regards to a lot of other things. And as looking at his life, we'll start to learn that he's, his character itself was also a bit out of place as well. So his painting and his art also reflected his general character and his personality as a person, which of course we'll get into. He's, he's most well known for being one of the, the early pioneers of people who are really reducing the visible world into these basic underlying shapes. And he had a very particular brush style. He often used very vertical brushwork and very horizontal brushwork in the construction of his paintings. And this went against the very naturalist approach that was happening often with other academic painters at the time, somebody like Bouguereau, who we can get into later as well. But when we look at a lot of what was respected in France at the time, it was very academic, very highly modeled painting, and Cezanne certainly was not that. So early on, we, we have somebody who sets himself apart from everything else that is occurring. 
I think this this way of thinking about Cezanne is also a little bit dangerous because it kind of reinforces this stereotypical myth that the artist is to be somebody outside of society, somebody who's going against the grain and just can't get along with what else is happening in the world. But I think it's an interesting thing to think about when we say somebody is a true artist, what that really means. And Cezanne was certainly a person that would just keep on painting and painting and painting, and his life was absolutely consumed by painting. And even when he got a little bit of recognition later on in his life, after working for nearly 40 years, they, you know, they had the opening, it was around 1895, and all the greats of the Parisian scene were there, of the rejects, of course, but um, Monet and Degas and these types of people. And Cezanne didn't even show up. Cezanne didn't even come to this, this big opening. And he just kind of stayed off in his little village, in his little house, and he just kept on painting and painting and painting through that opening itself. And I think that raises an interesting question of what are painters actually trying to achieve if it's not success in the public realm of some sort or some sort of reward. Oftentimes we think of people who just continually work and continually paint because they want to get that big payoff in the end or they want to have a big article written about them that says they're really smart. But what's it say about people who just continue to make and create regardless of what anybody thinks or wants? And the, the issue with Cezanne is, is also an extremely complicated one, as it will be with many art other artists as well, because there's always a need for some sort of recognition, I think. And if nobody recognized his work at all, and Monet said, this is garbage, he, he probably would have you know, felt really bad about that. Because at the end of the day, we're still dealing with color and form and putting these types of arrangements into compositions. And that's something that can just be looked at from a fairly objective level of saying this is good or this is bad. And you don't want to feel like you're just doing bad at something. Right, So we can think about Cezanne as somebody who's working consistently, nonstop, little public recognition, and he is largely outside of the public eye. It's not until 1895 uh, that he would get his first you know, big break in this exhibition. Now, one can't really look at Cezanne without thinking of Provence, which is the southern region of France where he grew up with he and his friends, all of which were artists. He was known for having this kind of amazing group of like-minded friends growing up, one of which was Emile Zola. But he and his friends, they would be reading a lot of different books, and they would be quite familiar with this notion of Arcadia, and living in such a beautiful region with a big, beautiful mountain and forest is, is somewhat idyllic. And we can think a little bit about what it means in terms of the pastoral and what it means in terms of utopia. Uh, and these are, these are two different concepts. And the one that Cezanne was more interested in was this idea of an Arcadian 
vision of the world. And an Arcadian vision of the world basically presents us with a harmonious view of the world where humans lie uncorrupted by civilization itself and they incest and they instead coexist with nature. Uh, this would be in contrast to writers such as Thomas More, who would envision a utopian civilization within it. So when we're thinking about an Arcadian view of the world, we imagine humans as being, they are the animals within nature itself. They're part of that entire ecosystem. This isn't some grand civilization on the hill. This is humans living side by side with nature and our own um, passions and reflexes and intuitions and all these sort of things are meant to be bound up with nature itself. So there's not as much hierarchy involved in this sort of Arcadian view of the world. Arcadia actually is an area of Greece, which is good to know, which is how we got this name, which was, you know, somewhat beautiful and idyllic and near the, the sea as well. So it's impossible to look at Cezanne's landscapes and not think about this type of harmony between him and nature. And a, a quote from Cezanne about Provence would be, it is only there that I have found true evidence of the light of our life, present in its simplest form, the austere and tender beauty of our Provence. So he's talking exactly about this Arcadian view of the world in this quote, and as well as this, the life of our light, you know, or the light of our life right? Being present in nature. It's a different way of looking at nature itself. If you heard the other podcast where we talk about Caspar David Friedrich, he's another interesting person to look at um, next to Cezanne in this regard, because Friedrich was taking the um, landscape and turning it into a, almost a Christian symbol. He had some of the first landscapes in churches even. So, Cezanne is, is playing with this, uh, this idea in another way, albeit more grounded in kind of a village type of life. So Cezanne's buddy, Emile Zola, moves to Paris when he's about 18, and he's a writer, and he's, uh, you know, ironically, he moves to Paris to, to write about the natural world. He's writing about a lot of these same themes. And he and Cezanne are, are writing back and forth to each other. And Zola actually writes him and says, look, you got, you, we've got a bunch of figure drawing classes that happen in the mornings, and we've got the Louvre here. How can you not want to come to Paris? You can just wake up in the morning and draw from the figure for four or five hours, and then spend your afternoons in the Louvre copying masters, works. So he pretty much, he really wanted his buddy, I think, to move to Paris so they could just hang out together. But he was, you know, really selling it as well. He's like, if you really want to p become a painter, come to Paris and uh, this is the spot to do it. So Cezanne, of course, wanted to go to Paris, but his dad was 
doing the uh, the standard dad route. I think his dad was a banker, actually. I'm not positive, but they were well off. And uh, his his dad wanted him to go to law school. He didn't want him to be, you know, some bohemian painter bum living in a in a garret with a you know a little wood burning stove having affairs with models and uh, drinking absinthe. So he wanted him to go to, to law school, and Cezanne actually listened to his dad. And he, you know, you think of what would be the worst thing that Cezanne could possibly study. Um, I think it must be law. And he, he called it, you know, this, this dreadful law and all these sort of things. He just absolutely hated it. And uh, he was in law school for about three years. I don't know if he passed the bar or in whatever the equivalent of that is in France at the time. But he did study study law for three years. And um, it was pretty obvious to everybody around Cezanne that this was not something that really made him happy. And his dad finally was like, all right, just go, you know. And um, so he took off for Paris in 1861 after he was kind of allowed freedom from his family. Uh, once he got into Paris, he did start doing some master copies, and he started taking some classes, but he was notably extremely critical of, him, of himself. He was known for really putting himself down, telling himself that he was doing a terrible job, that he's never going to be an artist, and all these sorts of things. I'm sure he felt, you know, completely out of step with a Parisian life. And of course, you've got Manet, wa you know, wandering around with all his buddies. And these, you know, Manet and his friends, these are respectable members of the con community. They're they're well dressed. They're going to the opera, you know, and um, they're basically the definition of bourgeois society. And here comes little runty Cezanne with his his big bushy beard and crazy eyes and um, coming to these same parties and trying to uh, mingle with these people, more or less. So he definitely had this kind of country bumpkin attitude compared to uh, the others around him. I think his, his dialect itself uh, from Provence, they actually speak a different form of French as well. So the way he spoke, it was immediately evident, oh, this guy's not from Paris. Um, so instead of like faking it and thinking, oh, you know, I'm just a country bumpkin, what, what can I do? Um, Cezanne basically just owns it. And he starts wearing, you know, even starts wearing like this uh, sash, like a red sash around his waist, which would be kind of a traditional thing to wear from his region. And uh, he, he let his beard grow and he let himself be that character. He's like, if you want to think I'm a country bumpkin, I'll be a country bumpkin, but I can still paint better than y'all, <laughs> right? So even at one point, it was it's said that he met says uh, met Manet and Manet went to shake his hand and Cezanne said no 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 don't shake my hand I haven't washed myself for a week so he was definitely playing into this character a little bit uh, by about eight, 1866 he's trying to get into the salon and for those who don't know the salon is this uh, unbelievably hierarchical show that happens every single year in Paris and it displays the best of the best. And of course, you know, people like Degas and uh, Pissarro and Cezanne and all these types of people 
they didn't care about the salon people. And the, the people at the salon were generally rewarding people who were technically very good at what they did. It wasn't necessarily based on innovation or pushing painting into areas that you know, hadn't been seen before. It was basically about who's the best cabinet maker, right? Uh, Bouguereau, probably. But <laughs> I, I, I can't stand Bouguereau. I don't understand Bouguereau at all. I mean, I can tell he's a good painter. Uh, you can Google his name out if you don't know him. But he's a French painter who does these. They look like Hallmark cards, basically. But they're, you know, obviously brilliantly painted but it, they're just like oozing with sentiment and silliness. So you can look at a Bougarou painting, one would be titled Recline After Harvest. And this is 1866 when, when Bougarou painted this. And you can look at that painting and it, rep, you know, it shows this woman who is lying on the ground next to this field, like staring directly at the viewer. And it, it just looks ridiculous, you know? It's like in the movies when somebody wakes up in the middle of the night and all their makeup is done and their hair is perfect. Like, that's kind of what that painting makes me think of. And um, so that's 1866, but the surface is beautiful and all the modeling that is done is beautiful and there's careful attention paid to all these minute um, variations in value and color, temperature and all this sort of stuff. So it's hard to say, oh, he can't paint, but it's just bleh. So compare that with a painting done by the same time from Cezanne, and you you'll see Cezanne is just like loading his palette knife up with paint and just globbing it on, leaving it to dry for three months, you know? Just put it on and forget it. So there's a huge um, opposition between the Academy and somebody like Cezanne at that point. And Cezanne, just like he's wearing that red sash, he just completely owns it and basically says, yeah, this is, you think I'm a monster? Um, well, then I'll just, you know, gob this painting with more and more paint. And, you know, in, in my respect, I think this is, it's, it's quite interesting because a lot of times, even today, we still talk about paint. What's the deal with paint? You know, why don't you just take a photograph? You know, why do you have to have a painting of something? What, what makes it better if, it, if it's made of paint? And Cezanne immediately kind of confronts this idea saying, yeah, this is a landscape or this is a portrait, but this is a painting and it's globbed up with paint. And I want to, I want people to see the paintiness of this painting. So in that respect, we, we kind of move from paint being something which is illusory, something which is used to create a window that we can look through and see highly modeled characters and you know these types of historical situations. And we move it into something which is drippy and substantive. There we go, substantive. Um, and Cezanne is the pioneer of this. This way of painting would actually be referred to as, a, pardon my French pronunciation, couillard. And um, a couillard is like a, a ball. It basically means ballsy, more or less. But uh, trebuchet couillard would actually be a weapon 
that would throw balls at a castle, right? So it's like a catapult sort of thing. And he would throw these like spiky balls at castles. And people would talk about his painting as being like couillard, like it's attacking the surface itself. It's an aggressive way of painting. So Cezanne is basically called Balzi, more or less. Uh, later on, he becomes friends with Pissarro, and some sources talk about Pissarro being this sort of fatherly figure to him. And, you know, I, I don't know if I buy that completely, just because, you know, Pissarro was like nine years older than he was, you know? So I don't think it was necessarily like, this is the father that Cezanne never had. Uh, you know, I, I think that Pissarro and Cezanne were more likely just friends and Pissarro was like, hey, we should we should go paint outside. Why are you painting in this studio? And Cezanne's, okay, I'll do that. And um, so they would they would go off and romp around in the mountains and just, just paint together. Um, so after a while, Cezanne basically has enough of the city and uh, he moves back to uh, Lestock. And it's here, his, his palette lightens. When you start looking at these paintings, you can see that there's a shift just in the color that he's using. And that probably just has something to, to do with just being close to the sea and seeing all that blue and sky. And it just makes everything lighten up a little bit. And uh, he lives in a, a small village in just a, a humble little home where he has a, a garden. And he wanders the countryside by himself, which was near the sea and paints as much as possible. Uh, here he would take the bits and pieces he learned from Pissarro and expand upon it. Here he would continue to work with these large patches of color, which was exactly the opposite of modeling and um, which would be more common amongst these academic painters. It's worth noting uh, uh, as another part of his life, which is important, he did fall in love with a model, actually, and they ended up having a child together. But he was so worried about the shame, you know, marrying, or he wasn't married, having a child out of wedlock and all this sort of stuff back in the day, that he, he actually concealed this from his family um, as well. So, but he was still very much in love with this woman and they would co correspond frequently as well. So 1874, Monet holds an exhibition of painters who had been rejected by the Academy. So they start putting up their own art show basically. He's like, you wanna see new painting, come and see our paintings. And you know, this, this was done at the same time as the salon was happening. So of course, there's some immediate controversy and there's people that want to see paintings, right? So there's people that come out to the salon to see paintings and what do they, what do they end up seeing as well as that? Oh, we can go a couple blocks this way. Let's look at the, all the, you know, the wild beasts, all these maniacs and their paintings as well. But you know, Cezanne's not really interested. He doesn't care about these politics, really. He doesn't seem to care about getting big in the Paris scene and doing all this sort of things. Um, like I said, you know, he probably wanted some form of recognition. I'm, I'm sure he liked that Monet and those people liked his work, but that wasn't, you know, that wasn't why he was in it. Uh, he was obviously focusing in his life in certain ways based solely off of painting itself. Um, and this is long before 
you know, he just wanted to be in nature and wanted to become harmonious with nature. And I think there's a lot to be said when you look at just his mark making itself, there's kind of this rhythmic quality. It's almost like when you watch, you know, water cascading down some creek in, in the mountains or something like that. There's just like a real natural flow to his brushwork within these canvases there's a real rhythmic approach to the creation of these works that it's hard not to compare it to some sort of a natural rhythm that is within us so in in Cezanne going back to this Arcadian view of the world and these sort of things and reading Virgil and uh, these types of books you know he's going off into nature all he wants to do is sit and paint by himself where it's quiet nobody bugging him, right? You know, walk, you know, go way off from where people usually wander around looking for mushrooms or whatever they're doing. Just be by yourself, paint the scene. And we know from Cezanne, he's not, he's not approaching these paintings in a way that's like, okay, well, this part's darker, and I guess this tree, is this texture right? You know, he's not approaching stuff in that way. He's looking at this, and he's also inventing an incredible amount while he's painting, and that must have felt like a really revolutionary thing to do. I don't have to just look at this and paint it absolutely realistically. So we can see that within the works themselves, and this is long before, you know, Jackson Pollock would proclaim, you know, I don't paint nature, I am nature. Cezanne um, would do it uh, many, what, 60 years previous to when he would. So Cezanne ends up moving back to his childhood home, and his, his dad got this bigger house, and his dad even makes him this big, nice studio in the house, which is pretty cool. And he's got this other, like, entryway type thing where he's making these big murals and stuff like that. You got to wonder, you know, when his family came home and here's the, you know, here's the art student who didn't, it didn't work out for him and uh, he moved back home. I wonder what they thought if they thought, like, are these paintings good? Like, I mean, how would they know? So they might have thought it was a lost cause. They might have thought he was a little bit different than other people. We, we kind of know from his personality that he tended to speak rather quickly and kind of coarsely, but from all accounts that I've read, he was also an extremely gentle person, an empathetic person. Um, I don't know. It's impossible to diagnose people in this day and age, you know, especially 120 years ago. What are we going to, what are we going to do? Guess. Um, how he is or not, but we know that from accounts of other people around him that he seemed to be somebody who would attract attention in a group setting and somebody who would certainly be leading conversations and be very quick with their words and wit and these sort of things, but also very sensitive. So you, we've probably all kind of known somebody like this in our lives before. We can think of Cezanne possibly as being similar to that. So he's back at home, and um, he's got, of course, we can't talk about uh, Cezanne without talk talking about Mount Saint-Victoire. And um, this is a giant mountain that existed in his community. 
and it wasn't you know necessarily huge compared to the Rocky Mountains or something like this, um, where you know Thomas Cole or these types of people would make these giant romantic paintings about this is a big mountain. Um, Mountain uh, Saint Victoire, it seems big because everything around it is rather flat, but it's only around it's around four thousand feet uh, tall. But it's still quite monumental, and it's an interesting subject because it can mean a couple different things. We can look at it and think, this is a mountain that's been here forever, right? So there's like an ancientness of this mountain, and you could, I'm sure, wander around to different regions there and see, you know, just how old everything looks, you know, for lack of a better term. There was also a, a quarry there and where a lot of stones had been cut. And you could even see the chisel marks in these stones. So it was like parts of the mountain are essentially just taken away. And there's these right angles left in the mountain itself. So one could look at those and think, is that kind of like Cezanne's brushwork? Eh, okay, um, yeah, maybe. But this is a, you know, it's a big natural thing. It's a, it's a mountain. Right. So and this kind of dominates his paintings. It also reminds him of his youth. So there's probably a bit of a nostalgic element to this mountain as well, where this was the place that he and his friends would go and just romp around and this sort of thing as well. So there's there's a personal connection and history that he has to this as well. So he can he has a great subject because he can paint something that he knows about. He can paint something that's personal to himself, and he can paint something which can resonate with a lot of other people and has this kind of great archetypal quality as well. So his father would pass away. Um, the, they would sell the house, and all of a sudden, Cezanne, you know, what, what are you going to do now, right? So he loses his studio and his family house and all this sort of thing. And uh, he, he buys an apartment in Aix-en-Provence. And he, he actually, you know, he's, he's making money. He has money. He's not some poor artist, necessarily, that's struggling to survive and eating rats and stuff. But he's got a, he's got a pretty nice apartment. He builds a big studio above it with nice north-facing windows. But... After working there, it's just, you know, the city is loud and there's drunk people yelling outside and all the hustle and bustle of the city. After working there for a while, he starts getting it into his head that he's going to build this studio uh, basically out in the wilderness, for lack of a better term, out away from people. And he works on this studio that he's building for years and years with contractors and all these sorts of people. And you can actually go visit this now. And it's a unbelievably perfect studio. You know, it has this huge north-facing window with a giant, you know, a giant north-facing window with these blinds that you can control the light with and all this sort of thing. And right to the right of the window, it's got this goofy long door that's really skinny. So imagine like a 15-foot tall door that it's not like a full-size door. It's just like a skinny door. And you could open up this door and just push out giant canvases. So you could like literally 
get a new canvas, be like, okay, bring it on in. You don't got to deal with doors, getting it in and all this sort of stuff. It's got this giant skinny, skinny door that you open. You just slide a canvas on in. So Cezanne, in, you know, in his, later in life, he would, uh, he would go a lot towards the figure, primarily the, the female figure. And again, these weren't like, oh, this is my Aunt Libby or whatever, right? These aren't paintings of people. A lot of his paintings of the figure are these almost Greek archetypal qualities of woman, right? So they're almost characters of women. And he does these, a lot of these multifigural compositions of them, very large pieces, beautiful pieces as well. And he would only spend, unfortunately, he'd spend the last five years of his life in this studio making these paintings. There's some speculation that his eyesight would uh, was d degenerating as well with old age and he had diabetes and all this sort of stuff and that he was losing his eyesight. But if you look to his, his some of his final paintings, you'll notice that a lot of these are actually um, just little blips of color. They're just like little swashes of color. And I love the fact he's like, I don't even need to cover the whole canvas. You know, he's, he says basically that. I don't have the exact quote. But basically he's like, I don't need to cover the canvas. I can just put a couple spots here and there. Done. It's good enough. Right? So we look at these, these some of these final pieces that he's creating, and we just get unbelievably short and precise color swatches of experience in that environment where he lived basically his entire life. So that wraps it up for the Cezanne Superman episode. If you like this sort of thing, subscribe and uh, hit the notification bell, all that sort of stuff. If you're interested in doing a painting workshop, I now have a space in Prague where I'm doing just that and I'm doing individual mentorship program. You can head over to paintingcourse.com and learn more about that. But it's a three week long individual mentorship program in Prague, Czech Republic, where I work directly with a painter two hours a day for three weeks and we use the city of Prague as an inspiration and as a place where we can see paintings and create paintings and all this sort of stuff. So if you're interested in that, in applying to that, uh, you can head over to paintingcourse.com. Stay tuned for more great art history from a painter's perspective. And as always, comment uh, who you would like to see next. I really appreciate your comments and suggestions and all that sort of stuff. So please keep commenting. Let me know what you want to see more of, what you want to see less of, and most importantly, what artists would you like to see featured in a podcast? Until next time, I'm Jeremiah Polachek. Goodbye.